It may not have been readily obvious to you as we read that passage from Ezra, but what we have made known to us there are three very basic things in terms of what it actually means to be God's people. And if you haven't seen it, as we read it, well, my prayer is that by the end, when I'm finished, you will have seen it and you'll be rejoicing in it. Well, after 70 years in exile in Babylon, having been taken there by force by King Nebuchadnezzar, and with the Medo-Persian Empire now in control, the newly crowned King Cyrus issued a decree permitting all of the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the city and, significantly, the temple. And the first of three groups returned, the first of them under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and that's what these opening chapters of Ezra record. And the restoration of the spiritual life of the people, the worship in the temple, that was their number one priority. And over time, and as kings and government officials came and went, as they did back then, just as they do today, suspicion of what the Jews were doing grew. And it grew to the point where the Jews became so afraid and discouraged by those who were starting to oppose them, that with only the foundation of the temple completed, they gave up, stopped working and went home. But God had not forgotten them and God had not abandoned them. So what did he do? He strengthened them in their weakness and he did so by sending in preachers, Haggai and Zechariah, whose messages are recorded still in the Old Testament towards the end of the Old Testament. And we discover that the word of God rebuked them, exhorted them, renewed them in faith and zeal, and back to work they went. And not only that, but the latest government officials who are now serving in Judah, Tatanai and Shethabosnai, they get in touch with King Darius, who's the new king. And they tell him what's going on in Jerusalem, and ask him to check out the story that the Jews have given them about Cyrus and the decree and so on. And Darius does just that. And he finds, or has found for him, the very scroll that contains the information about the decree that Cyrus had given. And he's able to confirm everything that the Jews have said. And he puts in place a package of help and assistance so that they have everything that they'll need in order to get the work done. God is overruling in the affairs of his people, as he always does. He's working on their behalf. And even the hearts and minds of pagan kings are powerless to resist God's promptings and makes them move in the favour of his people. And the building work in the temple is completed. The third day, 
of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And some have determined that that day was the 12th of March in the year 515 BC. And it's 23 years since they first arrived back in Jerusalem. 23 years it's taken them. Some of you wives think your husbands take a while with the DIY. 23 years. But it's done. Because that's why God had sent them back. That's the work he'd given them to do and they've done it. It's done. And I have three points for you this morning from this second half of Ezra chapter 6. Here's the first and we've heard it before but God presents us with it uh, presents us with it again. Number 1, God's providence and his word. His providence and his word verses 13 and 14. There are truths and lessons that God has for us that he doesn't want us to miss and so he keeps bringing them to us again and again. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. And he doesn't want you to miss these things because these are still largely how he works. This is how God has been working in your life. This is how God will continue to work in your life. His providence and his word. The evidence of God's ongoing providence on behalf of his people is seen in the behaviour of Tatanai and Shethar Bosnai. Let me ask you a question. How do you behave when no one's looking? If we could play a film of how you behave at home or in your place of work, if we could see your attitudes, if we could observe how you deal with people outside of church, if we could watch with what degree of integrity you carry out your work, would you be sitting comfortably or would you be feeling decidedly queasy? <laughs> what kinds of things have you observed in other people? In the workplace, for example. Are they the same when the boss comes in? as when he or she is absent. Jerusalem's a long way from Babylon. Who's going to know if, having received his letter from the king, Tatanai is a little economical with the truth? Who's going to know? Who's going to say anything if he's not as cooperative as the king would have him be? Who's going to know? Is this ungodly, unbelieving Gentile really going to be any different from any of the people that you've met who, well, they just do the bare minimum? As little as they think they can get away with. But look at verse 13. They did diligently according to what King Darius had sent. These two men take it all on board on behalf of God's people. This is God's providence at work. 
for his people here. In God's providence, Zerubbabel and the people of God find themselves dealing with a man of integrity in Tatanai. He could have been a scoundrel, but he wasn't. That's God's providence towards them. What's your boss like at work? Do you dread having to deal with him, her? Do you dread having to face them tomorrow? You do know, don't you? Even that is all according to God's providence in your life right now. They're the kinds of things we're going to begin to open up a little in the next few Sunday evenings as we consider to think about God's providence and how it actually affects you every single day. Even from the moment of your conception in the womb, the hand of God's providence has been upon you. It's a huge topic. It's a wonderful topic. More tonight on that one. But we see God's providence continuing to work on their behalf and in their favour with these two governors who are over them. Now it's obviously the case here, but of course you also need to remember that even when it's not quite so obvious, even when things perhaps are not running quite so smoothly, there is no lack of God's providence at work, even then. That's why we're called to walk by faith and not just by sight. But along with God's providence, and even more importantly in certain ways, is the ongoing work of God's word. Verse 14. The work of Haggai and Zechariah isn't over once the building work has been restarted. The word of God is needed daily in order that they might continue. That's why you need it too. They need instruction from those whom God has appointed. So do you. There's a very simple truth in being a Christian and in being a local church. That which gets the work started is also that which keeps the work going. You don't leave that behind and move on to something different or new. That which gets the work going is the same thing that keeps the work continuing. We may sometimes rightly ask where next where next can we go with the gospel where is there where there is no gospel church or gospel witness where next or we may ask who next who will go who can serve in this position or in that capacity? So, where? Who? Very, very rarely, if ever, will we need to ask, what next in the life of the church? 
We read in Acts chapter 2 that very well-known verse, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Good. What next? There is no next. That's what they continued in. There was a where next. And there was a who next. For example, as Paul and his travelling companions were chosen and went out on their missionary journeys, where next? Who next? But there was no what next. They simply continued continuing in those basic fundamental things. And so when you get to uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 11 to 14 and Paul's instructions there on what ought to be happening in a local church, you read those chapters through and what do you discover ought to be happening in a local church? The teaching of doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Read them through and that's what you'll discover there. And yes, there are references to spiritual gifts and there are references to the exercise of love, but all given within that broad context. The outworking of God's providence, the inworking of God's word. That's how God works. That's how he's working in you. That's how he'll continue to work in you. And we read that they prospered, verse 14. They prospered. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean they became wealthy, which is how some might like to think it translates. They prospered. What it means is they made good progress. The Hebrew word literally means to advance. But making good progress is perhaps how we would say it today. They made good progress. God's providence and God's word will continue to play a very, very big role in your life if you will make progress. And that's how God still works. His providence and his word. And that's what marks you out as God's people. Second thing we see in verses 15 to 20 is cleansing and atonement. The temple is finished, verse 15. And the people give themselves to celebration and worship, and rightly so. But I want to highlight these two things which are mentioned in those verses, which are crucial if you would truly worship God. And that is cleansing and atonement. Now these are Old Testament days, so things are slightly different for them. But the principle is the same. We read that the priests and Levites had purified themselves. 
all of them have made themselves to be ritually clean. Now what does that mean and why is, it in, why is it important for us to still take note of that? What it means is that they had done those things which God had said they must do in order to be able to serve him. And that's really important to grasp that. God has given them these rituals to fulfil and God said to them, when you've done that and made yourselves clean, then you are in a fit state to serve me under his Old Testament covenant. And that's what they've done. And so they're clean. In, in our sinfulness, we are all unclean before a holy God. Even the best of our deeds being as filthy rags before him. Zechariah would give us the picture of Joshua the high priest standing before God in filthy clothes. And it's God himself who deals with his uncleanness and does for Joshua the thing that he needs. The old filthy garments are taken off him and they're replaced with clean, rich robes. <coughs> Walk around two people's homes, this one and that one. One of the things that you may discover is that the people in this home and the people in that home have different ideas as to what is clean. Mightn't you? It's only God's version of clean that counts. It's only what God views as cleanness that counts before him. You might have your own ideas, but it's only his view of clean that counts. God has given the priests and the Levites a ritual of washing, which if they do it, he has said, enables him to look upon them as being clean, and therefore acceptable to fulfil their role in the worship of God's people. God has determined that which he considers satisfactory in his own eyes. That is his prerogative to do. That's what he's done for them. It's not for us to suppose what God might find acceptable. It's what God has said. And hand in hand with this cleansing, we see atoning for sins, making payment for sins, paying the penalty for sins. Twelve male goats given as a sin offering specifically says that. Our sins are so grievous, our crimes are so great before God that the wages of sin is death and the soul that sins must die. But the people are able to bring a sin offering again under that which God has instructed them. God has provided a means of being cleansed, but he's also provided a means whereby sins may be pardoned. Twelve male goats are sacrificed as a sin offering for all of Israel. God is satisfied with the death of another on their behalf, as he has determined. 
Interestingly, at this point in Israel's history, there's actually only Judah and Benjamin left of the 12 tribes. The northern 10 tribes were lost a couple of centuries before when the Assyrians came and destroyed them. But these sin offerings are for all of Israel. All of God's people are to have their sins atoned. And they go on to celebrate the feast of Passover. That Passover, of course, remembering those lambs that were killed and the bloodshed that took place in Egypt to deliver them from the death of the firstborn, the final of those ten plagues that came upon Egypt. So what's the first thing that these people do when the temple is finished? They remind themselves that there is a cleansing that they need if they are to be made acceptable to God. And they remind themselves that there's a penalty to be paid to atone for their many sins. It's the first two things they remember. Isn't that interesting? Because you see, they're the two things that are most needful. They're the two things that are most needful for you. That before a holy God, you may be cleansed and forgiven from all your sin. And here it is in Ezra chapter 6. You see, actually, they're reminding themselves just how much they need Christ. They don't have him yet, but he's coming. They don't have him yet, but he's in all of these symbols and rituals that God has given them for a time. The death and bloodshed of even 712 animals will never come close, never. But it is a sign of God's grace. He is prepared to accept the death of another on your behalf, that you too may be accepted. And it all points forward, you see, to this once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his blood, and through his blood alone, there is cleansing, and there is pardon for sins, and there is forgiveness. The one who is just, dying for the unjust, the righteous one laying down his own life for the unrighteous, the one who knew no sin, made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the one who would come into the world to save sinners. And here it is all pictured for us in Ezra chapter 6. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, it all comes to its wonderful fruition. So I have a question for you this morning. Do you see your need for cleansing and pardon from sin? Do you know God's saving grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself? It cost Jesus his very life's blood. But for you it's a freely offered gift which you may take hold of as you repent of your sins and put all of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, in this passage, we see consecrated people. 
consecrated people. Verses 21 and 22. The children of Israel who'd returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. One of the things that characterized the Lord's people was that they'd separated themselves from the filth of all the nations. All that horrible, horrendous, sometimes dreadfully wicked pagan worship all around them in order that they might seek the true and living God. You can't be involved in all that and truly seeking after the true God at the same time. There has to be this separation. Such separation from the world and consecration to the Lord, that's always been the hallmark of God's people. Always will be, still is today. Separation from the world and consecration to God. That, much of that is what the, word, the term saints means. When the Apostle Paul refers to believers as saints, those who've been separated from the world and consecrated to the Lord. We touched upon this last Wednesday, those of you who are with us. We're just pilgrims in this land on our journey to our true spiritual home. Christ has placed you in the world, but you're not of it. You're to be distinct. You're to be different. In Christ, you're renewed in heart and mind and in thought and in word. And in all your actions, different desires and motives and affections govern you now. A new character and nature growing inside each one of you who belongs to Christ. That's what began in you the first time you came to Christ in faith. That's what continues in you even now. Because how you began is how you continue. You're pursuing godliness and righteousness and holiness, aren't you? Is the world doing that? Pleasing yourself, pleasing others, that's all taken a back seat. Because pleasing God is now what defines you. And the filth of sin... It grieves your heart like it never did before. You cling every day to the certain promise that as you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and he'll forgive you your sins and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you go to him again and again and again. And he does it and he does it and he does it. Lives being sanctified by the truth of God's word laying aside all filthiness and receiving with meekness the implanted word of God. Walking in Christ as you've received him. This is how the Bible describes it in various places. Walking according to Christ, not according to the basic principles of the world. So that when unbelievers look at you, they think it's strange. You don't run after the things they're running after. 
Why don't you? In your union with Christ, you've died with him. You were buried with him. And you've been raised with him to newness of life. That's why. And now you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are his own special people. That you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. In Ezra, here are the people of God, living under his divine providence, encouraged, instructed, and exhorted through his word. Here in Ezra is his people at worship, accepted, cleansed, and pardoned from their sins. Here in Ezra are the Lord's people, separated to God and distinct from the world. And two and a half thousand years later, in Christ, that is exactly what God has made you to be. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, he who is able to present you faultless, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>